0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 21st of March, 2013, and Adam Bessie is with us. Hi, Adam.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, thanks for coming on. Really delighted to have you here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate for support. We have some great virtual conferences coming up. These are free practitioner-to-practitioner events. School Leadership Summit is next Thursday. This is really exciting, schoolleadershipsummit.com. It is free. Invite everyone you know. Lots of great presentations. At ISTE, we have all of the Fringe Festival kinds of activities at ISTE Unplugged, starting with the all day unconference conference the Saturday before called Hack Education. And then a Worldwide STEM Conference, Future of Libraries Conference, and the Global Education Conference all coming up later in the year. Coming up on this show, well, next week we're going to take a break because of the School Leadership Summit, but um, Bill Brennan, Zhao, and Michael Fullan uh, keynotes there, and, and much more. The week after that, Matt Hearn comes on to talk about de-schooling, John Hattie on visible learning. Then. Uh, more coming up there and some more that were added today that aren't on the list yet, but we'll leave those as a surprise. If you've missed any shows, they're all recorded. Jay Cross talked to us on Tuesday about informal learning, just a brilliant um, set of insights there. Edith harrell Caperton on constructionism and Seymour Papert. Uh, Paul Thomas, your friend, was on before that. Yes! Yeah, really delighted to have Paul on, that was terrific. And before that, Chris Mercoliano. Well, I'm glad you think so. Chris Merciliano came on and talked to us about the absence of childhood. And um, anyway, lots of, lots of thought-provoking material. hope there's something of value there for you to listen to. For our Studio One inch, you get to tell us where you're listening from. Look for the icon to the left of the map that looks like a star. You're going to click on that twice, and then you're going to click on the map. And for those who care, which may be nobody, I'm on this trip. And I'm in Sydney, Australia today. And Mm. it's nice weather. Actually, in the future, because it's the 22nd here. Feel free to put any notes in the chat. And if you're listening to the recording, please feel free to, um, well, there's nothing you can do if you're listening in the recording. The recording but <laughs> <laughs> We're sure glad you're here anyway.
1: I like how there's somebody up in uh, the North Pole there, it looks like.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm quite sure that's accurate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very accurate. We're in the future, after all.
0: There is a Mighty Bell space for this show. Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's, Gina Bianchini's latest project. I do consulting for Gina. Mighty Bell is this terrific way to curate content and have conversation. So I put a number of resources for the show today in the Mighty Bell space. That's linked in the chat there. That link is also on the blog post for the show. So Adam, I was a little nervous writing the blog post for the show to send out today by email because it, this is not a story that you're couching quietly and carefully, and you're you know. This is, this, is, this is some sort of bold, they're bold statements about what's mm-hmm. taking place. And, and in part, that, yeah. that um, you know, such a, makes you such a valuable contributor to the dialogue. But I'm, I'm going to bring up the, the three graphic, the comic version posts that were at Truth Hour mm-hmm. uh, and put them on, on the page. But first, maybe, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what's brought you to this part of the dialogue?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on, and I, I really appreciate the, the kind words there, and yes, I would say bold is a, a fair characterization of, of some of the work I've done, and what brought me here is I've been, at, I, although I may look young there, or maybe I don't look young anymore, I don't know, uh, but I started pretty young, and I've been teaching for 10 years now, started as a substitute high school teacher, and then summer school, high school, public schools, public school my entire life as well, well. And then uh, I've been a professor at San Francisco State University, a public school as well. And then now I've been at Diablo Valley College, which is a community college for about six years now. And I'm just earning tenure this week, in fact. And what brought me to writing about uh, public education is I've been a public education student and teacher my entire life. And in particular, what pushed me into really writing about my students, is what I saw in community college. Now, I don't know if any of the listeners have been to community college or know much about the community college system, but it is beautiful. And it is one of the only of its kind in the world. We really take anybody and everybody. And let me tell you, I think I've taught everybody. Um, I have a student right now in my class. This is an eighth grade literacy for adults class. She is blind. She has 50% hearing. She's 50 years old, and English is her second language. And in the same class, I've got another uh, man that's working a security job 40 hours a week. Um, in another class I've got somebody going straight to UC Berkeley. another class I've got a you know parent with three children. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. It's really the American promise of equal education for all. And being there and working in high school and then in community college, I was really able to see the challenges that my students faced uh, and that really is what got me motivated to really get out there and speak on their behalf. There's a lot more to it, but I'd say that really my experience as a teacher is what's galvanized me in speaking for them. Well, you're certainly
0: out of the mainstream of the dialogue, which is a great part of the value, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, um, let's, let's bring up the first of the, the three comic pieces here. Sure. And... Uh, those who are watching are going to see this um, come up in the web tour. If you're on the iPad app, you will not see it, but I'll put a link in the chat. Um, th- mm-hmm. How did you get to the place of doing this in comic form? Sure. Well, let me
1: first talk about a little more about the motivation and why we put it into a, a graphic work of graphic journalism. So not only am I, you know, is this writing an extension of my teaching, because I want to make sure that for me able to teach and help these students I've described, we have to have good policy, policy that values authentic learning. And what's concerned me is that a lot of the students that I see have not come from a secondary environment that really promotes authentic learning, project-based learning, creating a project, um, being creative. That's not to say reading and writing are important, that's what I teach. But an environment that really made learning engaging, exciting, and meaningful. And the policy under No Child Left Behind we have and subsequently raised the top uh, standardizes education and takes out all the inquiry that made me love education, love being a teacher. And so that inspired me to begin writing essays. I'm an essayist, I'm a writer, and I began writing a lot of essays about this subject and doing research and finding that while I got larger and larger audiences at Truth Out and at Daily Censored, they were pretty much limited to only people that were in the know. I mean I would have comments from the same people from article to article. And I said this is really a dialogue that has got to move outside of the fringes, the the wonk fringes, and just the teacher fringes. And what really pushed me to really make that conversation in my point of view and our point of view as teachers more in the dialogue is that education now is the hot topic. Uh, It is a starlet as I wrote about metaphorically this week, I wrote an article called Miss Reform uh, about uh, the, how the House of Cards, I don't know if anyone's seen that, the television program House of Cards, it's on Netflix. Uh, there's a whole subplot that's about an education bill which is almost strikingly similar to No Child Left Behind and Race to Top. And so you now see education reform and policies discussed in, on Netflix, you see television specials on NBC, such as Education Nation. You see Waiting for Superman in the box office, Won't Back Down in the box office. Um, you even have the film Bad Teacher. It's like education for years, when I first started, nobody talked about education. Now it's this hot topic, it's a starlight, everyone wants to see it. Unfortunately, the side that I'm seeing is not one that really represents my experience nor my students' experience in the classroom. Uh, and so. That motivated me to write, and then what motivated me to create this comic is to try to reach out to a larger audience and show, hey, this is really what's happening. And so the comic you see here, this is the first episode of the Disaster Capitalism Curriculum, which, as you said, is a very bold title, The High Price of Education Reform, is to show the other side of the narrative that you'll typically hear in the corporate media. The typical narrative you'll hear goes as follows. You can see on the top here you have Mitt Romney saying, education is the civil rights issue of our generation. The same sentiment was said by President Barack Obama, was said originally by George H.W. Bush, Newt Gingrich, everyone from all sides of the aisle says, we've got an education emergency and it's a civil rights issue of our generation. Now you won't hear them talking about poverty, which I see a lot teaching community college, You will not hear them talking about inadequate health care. What you will hear them talking about is this flood of bad teachers and failing schools which are protected by these sort of cronyistic unions. And as a result, the nation's economy is at risk. And furthermore, the the destinies of poor uh, minority students whom I work with generally are put in danger. And this is a narrative you hear repeated over and over again. And this is not just my general impression, but i spent two years researching this at length uh, for Project Censored, which is a book series that comes out every year. And I wrote a chapter this year called Germ Warfare, uh, which pretty much is the text version of the comic you see in front of you. And so over two years I researched this and found pretty much unequivocally from Waiting to Superman to the cover of the Times, the New York Times, you'll find elements of this narrative bad teachers, if we can eliminate them and eliminate the unions, and we can make the educational system more free market, more charter schools, more merit pay, we will ultimately solve the civil rights issue uh, and improve student outcomes for everyone. It's a wonderfully appealing narrative, but again, my experience is that it's not accurate. And So in this comic, if I can move this down a bit, I'd love everyone to just take a look at this first page here. Which is a real story from an anonymous teacher in Washington D.C. whom I talked with. I'll just maybe does everyone Steve, do you think everyone will want a minute just to look at this first page?
0: Absolutely, would you're doing be okay? great. And the only thing to say is great. Uh, because it just sends the URL to each individual user's computer, they'll actually have to scroll yeah. down themselves. So just tell them where you are.
1: Okay. So if you guys, if you guys scroll down a little bit, I'd love to just read you the text here, and I. This is an interview with a 6th grade uh, language teacher uh, whom I talked with at length and she wanted to remain anonymous because she was genuinely afraid of being fired for speaking out. Um, So I'm going to read you what um, this anonymous teacher whom I'll call Stacy uh, said. I teach English to 6th graders at a high poverty middle school. Because we are a quote failing school as are all the elementary schools that these students come from there is a constant pressure to raise test scores. So constant test prep is the expectation. You can see the children there behind reams and reams of worksheets, which is exactly what you described, that the children were generally not reading nor having fun with text. They were having to fill in the bubbles. Continuing with Stacy. We've been restructuring for the last couple of years. My school was consolidated with the school closed three years ago. So now we have 50 students in my class. That's not an exaggeration. I want to say that again, 50, which is I can't even (laughs) imagine teaching 50 students in a class. I have 25 to 30. She continues, all year our principal has told us that this year is do or die. Either meet the AYP, which means adequately or yearly progress, which comes from No Child Left Behind, which is a measure of test scores, or find new jobs. As an aside, this phrase, do or die is particularly meaningful in the context of the Washington D.C. area in which this teacher teaches. Um, There was, the day before I spoke to her, a shooting in front of the school she was at. There are nine murders a month in the D.C. metro area. There is a 40% poverty rate in the area in which this teacher teaches, and most of the parents, according to this teacher, do not have any jobs in the area. So this phrase, do or die, uh, not only refers to the school being shut down, but this death and violence and poverty that surrounds the children, which instead of being given an opportunity to express their feelings, they're giving multiple choice tests. Back to Stacy. The way the admin thinks we will reach this goal to make sure the school doesn't get closed because it scores are too low is constant skill and drill. They have a test six weeks into the semester with 50 students. this is somebody that has a teaching credential. She's given a scripted prepackaged curriculum. As someone who doesn't believe any of this, work is a constant struggle. If I sneak and do what I know my students will benefit from, reading novels, discussing them, discussing their lived experience in this environment, I risk bad evaluations and therefore I risk my job and my livelihood. This is what inspires and motivates me to write this. This is a real experience for this teacher. But not only imagine these students who have no outlet to express their experience and in a curriculum that doesn't embrace where they're coming from.
0: Are you pausing? Do you want a question? Or you just I'm just paused. pausing. Yeah, I just wanted to <laughs> let
1: that sink in, let that sink in. And I just think it's pretty heavy. I I, I cried on the phone when talking to her. As a teacher, I have, in community college, I have complete freedom, pretty much, to look at my students, to personalize my instruction to them, if something's going wrong, to adapt it. And this teacher who's in our nation's capital, merely blocks away from the center of power where these legislation is being passed is unable to do what she knows is best and is unable to form a curriculum that really works in favor of these students. And one sentiment she told me is that instead of empowering the students she felt like she was imprisoning them. She told me that she felt like the projects in which many of her students came from was a prison. And that she now felt like she had to be a prison guard in order to keep her job. Now I talked a little bit earlier, Steve, about this idea of how I'm so passionate about this because policy impacts what we can do in the classroom. This is a very clear example of this. The policy that's forcing her to have to teach the test is No Child Left Behind. Under No Child Left Behind, if the school does not meet adequately yearly progress, means that the student's test scores do not go up um, for about two or three years. The school is in danger of, if you guys can scroll down uh, to the third page, there are four different options that Stacy school could go under. It could be turned around. Well, what does that mean? That means that it's basically, it's just the same thing you'd see in the private sector, something very much like Mitt Romney would do when he worked for Bain Capital. You take out the management and you fire half the teachers and you restart the school basically. You can then restart the school where you pretty much fire everyone, you hand it over to private uh, private enterprise, you can convert the school to a charter school simply close it and the students are all pushed into a new quote unquote higher performing school. And these policies obviously is to the test, these are high stakes standardized tests, They're not used as formative assessment by which a formative assessment for listeners that don't know would be one where for example Stacy or I would get the data from our students. We'd look at their writing, their reading and we'd make decisions about how to, how to best remediate or respond to that and improve our instructions. Uh, These tests don't really have that effect. Really they are to make big decisions. And so what ends up happening is that if this school can't make the test scores, then Stacy loses her job. So she has very much a motivation to teach to the test. Beyond that, um, Washington DC under Michelle Rhee, who we'll probably talk about later, implemented what's called the impact scoring system, which is a value value added measure the value added measure assesses just like schools teachers based on the, their students test scores and so in a very real way if um, our teacher stacy is not able to increase her students test scores then she and the school is at risk of losing she is at risk of losing her job and the school is at risk of being put out now It's hard to disagree with this. You say, well, if the test scores are better, this is good policy. She's being forced to make sure she gives these students a good education. But again, these are children that have just seen a shooting outside of their school. There are 50 students in a class. These worksheets are not really reflecting their life. And what's so fascinating to me, Steve, and to the listeners, is that standardization has become what is the future of education? We need to have value-added measures to assess the teachers, assess the schools. Standardization is a concept that is very ancient. I mean, it comes from the assembly line. And we live in, you talk about the future of education. We're all about customization, individualization, and standardization is the exact antithesis to that. And Stacey is being hamstrung by policies like no child left behind the race to talk which do not allow her to engage in a real twenty first century curriculum by which she can really individuate the instruction. So this is where my passions rise from is that I want to make sure that we create classroom environments, policy that allow classroom environments that really allow students students and teacher to do their best work.
0: So Peggy asked in the chat kind of how this relates to germ. Posse Solberg yes. talked, talked about Posse talks about this being like an epidemic. That, it, that this reform movement yeah. spreads and infects like a virus. What What yeah. is it about, what can we learn from the fact that this narrative of school reform is so pervasive? How does this happen and wh- what does it tell us about how we think and act that, that, a, that this particular sort of shallower narrative kind of um, holds the sway?
1: So that's a wonderful question, Peggy. Uh, thank you. Everything I've described is germ, the Global Education Reform Movement. That's why we began this first page of Stacy. She, her classroom has been infected by germ. Let me give a little bit of background if I can. I have the great opportunity in the production of this comic uh, investigation to talk to Posse Salberg, who is a, a, minister of, a minister of education in Finland and wrote a wonderful book called Finnish Lessons which I highly recommend you reading or any of the articles that he has published including one from about two years ago in the Atlantic. And if you ever had the opportunity to see him speak, do it. He's very articulate. Um, the global education reform movement has a couple of different components that you've heard that I've sort of narrated but haven't teased out. Let me tease them out for you. The global education reform movement views education not as a public service but as a private service. It views education as a marketplace and that instead of the education service being run by the government, it should be curated by the government and really run by private enterprise. How does this manifest? Well. Think about what I just told you about No Child Left Behind. It sets up a situation where you have schools like Stacy's that are in danger of failing. That's trying to create competitive pressure. Just like you would have in a free open marketplace. The idea being the standardized test scores you would see are like profits. The schools that have high standardized test scores do well, they retain their funding in autonomy. The schools that do not do well get turned around or um, put out of business basically. In much the same way germ policies look at teachers in that same way. The teachers that on value added measures perform well, quote unquote, get to stay on or perhaps they get merit paying, they get paid more, so they're quote unquote incentivized to do better and the teachers that do not perform well uh, are are booted out of the profession. Charter schools are part of this germ philosophy as well. Charter schools um, are publicly funded However, they're run by private enterprise essentially and so the goal behind increasing charter schools is you have competition so each one of the schools is pit against each other to create the highest test scores and supposedly the best education. So under the theory of GERM, the idea is let's replace this public school system with this privatized market school system under the assumption that all the competition will make every, all the education better for everybody. And Ponce Sahlberg said this is a very appealing narrative. I mean it makes sense. We think about it in all other parts, right? You want to create a competitive market to make the best phone possible, right? That's very appealing, right? If if my phone provider doesn't work, then another phone provider is better. Well, I'm going to go to that better phone provider. So it's a very appealing narrative, the idea that, you know, education isn't working because we need to make it work more like the marketplace. because." You know, everything else apparently works so well via competition in the marketplace. And to give you guys a little bit further background, and this is something which is on the second page of the germ, uh, the uh, comic that I did with Dan Archer, the Disaster Capitalism Curriculum. The seeds or where germ germinated is from a man named Milton Friedman. He was Ronald Reagan's uh, economic advisor and wrote a book called Capitalism and Freedom in about 1962. And in particular, there's a chapter called The Government and the Role of Schooling. And there he lays out the philosophy that's borne fruit today, which is that being run by the government, and he calls public schools government-run schools, uh, ensures that there'll be a low quality. And the only way to make things work better is to adopt this corporate privatized model. And he was the one that invented the concept of the school voucher. Anyone heard of that here? And the school voucher is the idea that the government gives you money directly and you can choose which school to go to. And he is the grandfather of these ideas which now have been instituted in various forums in notes are left behind and race to the top. And which now Ponce Salberg calls a juror. And why it's the global education reform movement is that America is on the front lines of this. But you'll see it also in Great Britain. I believe Australia also, I don't know, you'd have to tell me, Steve, has been infected by this, Um, and elsewhere in the world. Finland is the one holdout from this. So that gives you a little bit of background on Jura. Do you have any other follow-ups there, Peggy, or anybody else? It's a pretty complicated
0: subject. Here's my question. Uh, Is this part of a larger power um, dynamic Meaning, are, is this part of the same thing we're seeing, say, with medicine and healthcare, and with food and food production, and with Wall Street and government? Is this mm-hmm. part of a larger story that just, but we're in education, just seeing this one piece of it, which is playing out as as visualizing education as a corporate activity?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. This is one one small part of the larger. Um, how do I frame this? Uh, Infection, I I don't know if infection is the right word because I think corporations have done a lot of great things for this country. I mean, for example, this platform we're using right now is built by a corporation and it works great. Um, The the books that I use in my class are published by corporations. The comic book, um, we printed a print version of the comic book was printed by a corporation. So corporations are wonderful, but it's corporations taking over increasingly um, public and democratic functions. So let me give you a case study, if I might, that might address your larger picture question. The second chapter of the disaster capitalism curriculum is focused on New Orleans. So I talked with um, in that in that part of our chapter in the disaster capitalism curriculum, a professor at Tulane, uh, Dr. Lansill, whose children went through the uh, New Orleans public schools. Uh, I talked to Karen Harper Royale who blogs a lot and is a parent of the children currently in the New Orleans public schools. Uh, you definitely follow her. Car- her- Karen Harper-Royal is wonderful. And I also talked to Dr. Terry Moe who is a professor at uh, Stanford University who is an expert in vouchers. And you look at uh, New Orleans and you see a perfect example of what happens when corporations take over governmental functions, not only in education but more broadly. So immediately after Hurricane Katrina, uh, the public school system was essentially uh, wiped out. Uh, It was essentially destroyed. And Milton Friedman, uh, immediately before he died, uh, said that this, what happened in Katrina is a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to really start over the system and to implement this vision. And so this is what happened. Instead of continuing with the government run public schools in New Orleans, they essentially charterized the entire of New Orleans. There are barely any regular public schools as you would see. For example, where I live out in Berkeley or in the East Bay, you have all charter schools essentially. And these charter schools are given money by the federal and state government, but also they are run, again, by private enterprise and get significant philanthropic money. Here's a case study. Uh, there's one school called Psy Academy. This school is on Oprah, touted as one of the best schools in the country. And, and indeed, um, 96% of Psy Academy's graduates have been accepted to universities and many of them are the first in their family to do so. Um, most of the children are very impoverished and it appears to be a miracle school. And it's been touted as a post Katrina miracle school. We destroyed the system. Now we've rebuilt it using this germ model with competition at the forefront. So instead of the government running thing, we've got private enterprise getting in there and competing to make the best school. And Sci Academy is seeing, seen on the leading edge of this. So it looks great. What do you not see? Well, according to Dr. Lansell, he sees what, happen, what happens here very much like what you see in healthcare. Sci Academy only takes on the best students. He, he accuses Psy Academy, other of these charter schools, of being great schools, to be sure, but only because they're able to um, talk students that wouldn't be a good fit. They're out, and especially special ed students. Uh, there was a lawsuit filed on behalf of the Southern Public Law Center saying that Psy Academy, uh was not, uh, was pushing out too many special ed students. And so what he says essentially is that Psy Academy looks great because it's cooking the books. You've only got the most motivated uh, parents putting their children in there, and only the students that are most likely to succeed being put in there. And this is very much – he provided an analogy to the healthcare system. He said this is very much like what um, corporate Wall Street healthcare providers do. They make profits by denying services, not giving them. So you want to make sure that you – are enrolling only the healthy patients and not the ones you actually have to provide service for. So what he's saying basically is that what he sees in New Orleans, and he he projects this across of all ways in which when corporations take over public services, you end up getting a two-tiered system. You get a system that serves some people really well. And Psy Academy clearly is serving some of these students very well. But then everyone else just falls through the cracks because there's no incentive for the corporations to invest money in children that are not going to amount to anything. Now, on the other side, Professor Terry Moe is a big proponent of what's happened in New Orleans. Uh, says, well, this is not true at all. Charter schools like Sci Academy are public schools just like any other. And that this competitive, this competitive pressure is needed in order to raise up all schools. You know, and the phrase that he might use, I don't know if he uses this directly, is, you know, a rising tide carries up all boats. Now, in terms of corporate influence, let's look at Psy Academy a little bit more deeply. Not only does it get public funding, but this this institution, this public school, quote-unquote, gets money from what Diane Ravich calls the Billionaire Boys Club, uh, what Joanne Barkan calls the Big Three. That's Eli and Edith Broad, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Walton Family Fund. And so what you end up having, you have this school that looks wonderful, it's on Oprah. it, it has no, it's, 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 they say they have excellent teachers, no unions, they're taking the poor children, poor minority children, and they're performing wonderfully. But underneath that, what you have is that they are perhaps not serving the most difficult cases. Um, when they started, by the way, too, they, they had 80 students and went down to 53. They're counseling out a lot of students. And they've got huge amounts of money behind them that a regular public school doesn't have. So Lance Hill's basic conclusion is that it's all a show. That this corporate reform, just like the corporate world, does great PR. On paper, New Orleans looks like a wonderful success story. That they've taken... A broken down school system and fixed it but this is only illusion and when you look beneath it really you again have this two tiered system where some people are being served well, most are not. And I'll, I'll end this anecdote with our Karen Harper-Royal who is an education advocate, I believe she's running for the school board down there in, um, in New Orleans and she's an African American mother. Her child does go to a charter school as well. And she said that in New Orleans, this is her quote, we've always had some excellent schools for some children. And after all this reform, we will still have excellent schools for some children. That does not make for a reformed system. What's going on with Education in New Orleans is a fairy tale. And she projects this out to the entire country, to this corporate germ education reform. It's a fairy tale. After our disaster, we all just pretended it's working because we don't really want to know the truth. Charters vouchers, it was never about helping children out of failing schools. It was really about defunding public education politics about showing that you can govern on less money, about putting money from public coffers into private hands. It's not about downtrodden minority kids. It's not equalizing nothing. That's her statement. So again, I I think that to answer your question about germ, germ in a very simple way, if you want to recognize it, is about taking, putting the private sector Wall Street in control of our public schools, and while it may have a limited number of anomalies that produce great results, by and large, it's just re- repeating the inequities we see in the system in general.
0: So Carol uh, had a quote in the, a question in the chat, and there's um, someone else may have as well. But the sort of the general idea being, um, you know, aren't there failing schools? And if there are failing schools, isn't this a reasonable way? to approach it. And um, if we're thinking about um, sort of the the larger dialogue around education, uh, why wouldn't we want to make some of these changes?
1: Great question. Um, Thank you, Carol, very much. First of all, I want to talk about that term failing school. I want to ask this directly to you, Carol. What is a failing school? I want to ask that to all the listeners. What does that mean, a failing school? What does it mean that a school failed? Let me give you an example and you guys tell me if you think this school is failing or not. So in Silicon Valley, near where I live, there's a school that has been featured on PBS. It's also been featured on Education Nation. It's called the Rocketship Charter School Chain. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. And very much like the Sci Academy, which I just described, um, it's in a low income neighborhood. A lot of the students are on free and reduced lunches. Um, mostly minority population, and it's considered a miracle school. Again, uh, when you hear the media, it's got wonderful test scores, so on and so forth. The same sort of narrative. There's no unions at the school. Um, you've got quote unquote great teachers, right, and it's got a lot of private enterprise behind it. Reed Hastings, um, uh, Netflix's CEO, is, is invested in it. Everybody on the board of directors has some connection to Bill Gates or Microsoft. So it's got a lot of support behind it. And again, it's got great test scores and it, it on reading and math, again, No Child Left Behind does not assess your artistic ability, does not assess your um, creative ability, your knowledge of history. So they have great scores on reading and math that are comparable to or better than their peers. Now, is this a successful school? According to No Child Left Behind Race to Talent, yes, this is a very successful school. But it doesn't have art and it doesn't have PE, it doesn't have music, it doesn't have drama. The children spend two hours a day on a computer program called Dreambox, which Reed Hastings Corporation is invested in, and it's an individualized education program. If you watch the PBS special, if you guys look that up on the Rocket Chip Charter School, you can see this, this program in action, and the kids are sitting there individually, each with headphones on uh, at in third grade doing this. So my question to you, Carol, is, Would that be a failing school or a successful school? My opinion would be that that's a failing school. As an educator, uh, we're not just trying to get, especially in the 21st century economy, just being good at taking tests is not what we need. If we're going to, especially if we want to take this, let's, let's take a capitalist approach. Forget being a good citizen, let's just be purely capitalist for a minute. If we want to compete in the knowledge economy that Obama has talked about, we need to have people that are entrepreneurs, innovators, idea makers, design makers, and teaching students to pass standardized tests is not accomplishing that. Depriving students of the arts is not accomplishing that. Depriving students of PE is not helping them that. And especially in a 21st century, to be a 21st century citizen, depriving students of these, of having a well-rounded education to me, uh, is not giving them a good education. This term, failing schools, is one way that each of you can recognize the signs of germ. Failing schools is a term that that pretty much was not used until a couple years ago. If you look up, this is I wrote about this in Project Censor 2013, and I'm an English teacher, so my primary focus is on language and what kind of language is used when talking about uh, education, and so. When I think it was about 2008, I might be wrong on this, I don't have the facts right in front of me. Um, here it is. So uh, last year you could find about 5,000 news articles right after Mitt Romney's education speech using the term failing schools. Before 2008 this term was barely used at all. I'm talking about like in 1992 going back to then there were only 500 items in general. and so. Failing schools is a term that implies a particular worldview. What does it mean for a school to fail as I said? It's very much like a failed business. It again, when you use the term failing schools, you've already bought into the germ way of thinking. And it has a particular definition behind it. Again, a failing school is not defined as a school that doesn't have the arts, that doesn't, it, it's safe, Creative, it's just defined as a school, a failing school, that doesn't have reading or math scores. And by using this term, you've already bought into that way of thinking, that schools can fail and succeed and that the succeeding schools have good test scores and the failing schools have bad test scores. Now, this is not a dodge to your question, Carol. As I can imagine, I'm not reading the comments here, but it sounds like a dodge. That's not to say there's not better and worse schools. There's not to say that there aren't schools where that could be improved significantly. And in fact, the entire point of my talk is not to rip apart germ, but rather to talk about better ways that we can conceptualize education. And so, I think Finland points a way forward that would help us to improve our schools because certainly Endlessly, like Stacy's classroom that I talked about in Washington, D.C., endlessly testing our children, depriving of the arts, not acknowledging their experience, not customizing learning to them is not the way forward. It's not the way to make schools better. Closing down schools because they're not performing well. So the students that already have disjointed home lives, having high turnover of teachers, and this is what happens when you have like Michelle Reed's system where you have intense pressure on teachers. And not giving them autonomy, so you have a higher turnover than you already do. That's not good for children either that are from disadvantaged environments. We want our schools to be solid, safe, stable, and strong. And the free market approach, while it is wonderful for making phones, I mean, and computers that I'm talking to you on now, it is not the best way forward in terms of improving our children's learning.
0: Well, Adam, I think there's an interesting dynamic taking place that's playing out as well in the chat. And that is that this isn't just about the question of improving schools. It, there's actually the deeper question of why schools exist. And and do we justify yes. them as producing economic output? Or are they for citizenship? I'm intrigued at the degree to which Finland and other countries, uh, in particular, was just in New Zealand, that, that, um, the two that I know of, they look to Dewey and American schools of education yes. for their philosophical base but they kind of openly state we're not follow- we're not practicing what the United States practices but we are following the great research
1: yes um, so let me speak to that this is the the third section of the disaster capitalism curriculum which is called the Finnish alternative and this is um, it's four pages long, but it was, I talked to Posse Saulberg for an hour, and I read his entire book, which is 130 pages. It's highly complex, so you only get a partial picture of his theory. But what's interesting about what they've done is that, and this is a quote from Posse Saulberg directly. I love this. Finland is where the great American ideas and innovations have been put into practice, and you kind of alluded to that. And one of the great American innovations uh, comes from Mr. John Dooley. And I would suggest to anyone that is not familiar with him, you can look him up. There's a wonderful um, short biography of him um, on the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, I believe it is. And he believes in project-based learning. And the Finnish system is all about project-based learning. What that means is that you're modeling basically schools and what we do, what we should do in the world. Which is being creative, creating something, creating a product. Right? And so let me give you a concrete example from the Finnish system. So in a math class, for example, now at Stacy's high middle school, they would probably give students lots of worksheets and say fill these in. The worksheets would be decontextualized from any real-world purpose. They'd say three plus five equals whatever. In Finland, what they would do is they're teaching the same content or concepts, but there's a project underlying it that engages the students together to learn that concept. So they would, Posse told me, have a, for example, they need to plan a birthday party. And they need to work in groups together to do this. And in planning this birthday party, they have to use the same math that that person in the worksheet had to use. Now what's the advantage here? Well, the advantage is is a couple fold. Number one, In Finland, you have small class sizes, 15 to 20 students, which is almost unheard of in the United States. You have no ability grouping, meaning in this class, you you don't just have low level students or just high level students. You've got everybody in there. And you've got, because there are going to be some students struggling, you've got um, additional tutors in there to help the students that are struggling. And by doing this math lesson in such a way where you've got maybe the more advanced students helping and teaching the other students while the teacher is teaming with them, the student is not only learning that math, they're doing something fun for them and engages them where they get to see the purpose of it. So therefore, they're more likely to remember it, be motivated by it. And as another important benefit, they're encouraging their creativity and their citizenship. They've got to work together to solve this problem. This is doing way a way of thinking. And it's rigorous as well. I mean to me, you know, this idea, well, oh, you're being creative, that's that's easy. No, I mean this is far more rigorous. Instead of just filling out a worksheet on your own, boy, you've got to you've got to navigate social relationships, you've got to use your critical thinking, you've got to be creative, you've got to do all the things that we want people to do, not just in the workplace, but in life. And so when I look in at Finland, I, I see a way really forward for us. That's funny enough—a way backwards because we're just going back to philosophies that are already there, that we've just overlooked in favor of other philosophies in American history, like standardized testing.
0: So I want to ask my hardest question today, because Dewey really brings us to this point, this very interesting point, and and the Finland example is great, and it. it Clearly, it's not about the specific practices as much as it's about a unified sense of why schools exist and what value they bring. Yes. So I, I call this the progressive dilemma, right? which is Dewey has mm-hmm. this very great uh, s- understanding of, of how learning can take place. But there's also this belief that, that the school is a tool for some group in the society to use for social advancement. Right, That the the schools are run by somebody based on some guiding principle. I don't see us in the United Mm -hmm. States coming to the same kind of a consensus that they have been able to come to in Finland. So the dilemma is, can we actually see schools existing for that purpose if that means that one group, it will just be changing which group determines what they think is of value for the rest of the society.
1: You know, that's a wonderful question, and, and I don't necessarily have an answer. I think a, a lot of what I'm trying to do is not to have my idea supplant germ, but simply to get people to think about other ways to approach education. But let me approach your, your, your wonderful question, this dilemma, the best way I can. Um, I basically posed the same question to Posse Solberg. I said, you know, you've got, a, you've got a much smaller country than ours. You have a homogeneous population. Uh, you've got 4% childhood poverty. Um, it's a very different country. And he said well, you know, I agree with that uh, completely, um, but we 30 plus years ago decided as a country we really needed to improve education and they, Finland we see as a sort of a rich country, it was not rich when they started this. They didn't have Nokia or anything like that they have now. It was a rural country and they, they determined that we're going to use uh, education as a tool, as you noted well, to progress, to change not only our economy but our culture. And they underwent a huge systemic change. So instead of changing any individual schools, they endeavored to change the entire system and Dewey was a natural fit for them. And perhaps they were able to come to consensus easier either than us because he said that's part of their culture. He said, you know, they're stuck between uh, you know, they're right next to Russia and other powers, and as a function of their survival as a country, they needed to be consensus builders. Now, in America, we're, we're a lot more competitive of a country. Now, when I posed that to Posse Solberg, he said, we're a highly competitive country, too, and there is no fundamental disconnect, he said, and I thought this was really important, between competition and collaboration and consensus. The two go together. And that's reflected very much in how the Finnish teacher education system works. Um, the listeners probably have read about this, but maybe they haven't. In Finland, it's as hard to become a teacher as it is a doctor. I mean, they accept only like something like 10% of, of teachers. I and mean, the teachers are all unionized. It's a lifetime job. But there's a perfect example of competition and collaboration. It's highly competitive to get in there. And then once they're in there, they really collaborate and work together in order to build a better education system. Now, I said, God, this is wonderful that you guys do this. It took you 40 years um, at least. You worked together. You made progress. How could we ever do this in a country of 300 billion people with such diverse ideas about things? And he said, well, start small. You don't need to start it as a system-wide reform. A particular city or district could begin by doing some of these reforms really grassroots, bottom up rather than top down. And I think it's, a, it's a, a difficult balance and I'm not a policy walk so I don't necessarily have all the answers that would we would be looking for in this. But, but I do think that what we need to have as, oh yeah I'm sorry jump in
0: please. Well no I think you brought us to a really great place because uh, um, you know I have some friends who started chartered schools right and they're good yeah. people who really want to make a difference. And and that kind of brings me to what I call the conservative dilemma, right, which is lots of these people have a strong desire to improve things and to free themselves from restrictions that would stop them from making that improvement. The conservative dilemma dilemma is, to me it seems, that that often gets associated with corporatization, right, and those can be separated out in the same way that for progressive dilemma, the progressive dilemma we could separate out, the teaching strategies with um, government and social policy. But but as I've watched the chat, I hear a lot of the chat going through saying, you know, isn't there value in this sort of freedom of chartered schools? Is there?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, let's talk about that. I know I mean, where I was getting to my answer in a long-winded approach is that we've got to find a way to bring the best of both worlds together. I don't have an answer to that. But let me let me talk about the impulse to charter charterdom, which is very understandable. I've taught in public education for 10 years. I'm very well aware of bureaucracy. Um, and in fact, this is gonna sound bad to your listeners maybe, but I think bureaucracy is, is great in some ways and very important. I'll give you a case in point. I'm on the hiring committee right now and there's tons of bureaucracy to ensure that we're fair. And I think that bureaucracy is very important to make sure that, that people get a fair shot to get a job. And on the way out, too, there's due process if someone's not up to the task, That we do have due process on the way out. On the other hand, obviously, and this is one of the reasons charter schools have come into existence, there are some schools that don't have that kind of freedom. I mean, let's, let's go back to Stacy for a minute. Can not you imagine Stacy, who I talked about in the beginning, who's under all this pressure to do these standardized tests wanting to open a charter school? Hell, if, if I was Stacy and I was in, the, in, in her situation and there's a charter school in the area that said we're going to do the John Dewey Charter School and I'm sure there's one open somewhere. Would you like to join us? I can, I can imagine that impulse would be there and that I would want to do that. So the question is how do we have the freedom that charter schools have without the segregation that they create? A really important fact for listeners to get, and there's a study they can look up from UCLA, is charter schools increase racial segregation, they increase linguistic segregation, they increase socioeconomic segregation, they increase ideological segregation. So how do we balance the needs to, I mean, to educate everyone? And to, I would say, optimally have a situation where you have different people. I mean, the beauty of public schools, the beauty of community college where I teach, is I've got really conservative students who I love, really liberal students. I've got that student I told you about in the beginning who's blind and deaf. I've got immigrant students. And they're all in one class. And that is America, and that is beautiful. And what worries me is that with the charter school movement, while this desire for freedom in individuation is understandable, I worry about that undermining our community. And so I wonder if, if, as public schools move forward, what I would love to see again is the Finnish model does have this consensus building. But once they get to high school, there's so much more freedom. Students can take a variety of different classes. They can have different courses. And I think that there's no reason why the public schools can't build in to some degree some of the latitude and choice that charter schools have. And the first step to me would be taking out these draconian, no child left behind and race to off laws. And implementing more common sense uh, policy that allows for a little more latitude that would allow these people that, that your friends, who I, I have no doubt they have great motivations And I'm not saying that people that are behind germ have bad motivations either. I think they believe that's what's best. But as an educator who works with people and works with people that have all sorts of challenges and as someone that's researched at this length at length. I think our step, our, our step forward has got to be a public education system that really serves everybody but also has the flexibility to include different viewpoints. Unfortunately, I'm not the person to come up with that policy and I don't have the answer. Maybe one of your listeners does. But I hope that, it, that addresses some of the conversation on the board there.
0: Well, I think the interesting piece there is right, that it's very easy to focus on practices and it's much more difficult to yeah. focus on an actual cultural consensus on, the, on why schools exist. And it, you know, it feels yeah. as though, from the, from the, the graphic journalism of the comics, uh, and, and I meant to ask you this, you know, there's a quote from Jefferson, and that schools are sort of yes. exist for the purpose of helping build and replenish and renew democracy. Right? Is that actually a belief yes. the Finns have? Oh, certainly,
1: yeah. I mean, schooling schooling is, a, Posse Salberg says this directly in his book, schooling is a part of a well-functioning democracy. Schooling certainly has an economic function. And when you look at, I mean, some of the fascinating things that the Finnish school system does is, for example, they have vocational ed, which America's all but cut out, is directly linked to their marketplace. And they, Nokia, their major corporation there, works really directly with the schools, but also they see the school system, I think like I do, more holistically. Do I think schools have an economic function? Definitely. When I go in that classroom, I think my students' ability to read and write is, is 100% tied to their ability to get a job. And that's important to me that they leave the class and they can read and write thoughtfully. But at the same time, another function is that they can read and write effectively for personal reasons. They can read and write effectively to be a part of the democracy. And I think that when we look at schooling, I mean, I think myself, the people that I work with on uh, the Network for Public Education, which is Diane Ravitch uh, and Anthony Cody, who's a wonderful Oakland educator who I hope you have on the show sometime, have talked about is that we're, we're trying to improve the schools by making them, again, bring all these variables into account that schooling is a place to improve, to make better citizens, whatever the hell that means, that's a long debate, to make people more competitive for the workplace, and many other reasons. And I just don't think that right now we've gotten, we're perseverating about the economy and the the only function of the economy. And if we perseverate on that, not only will we destroy our economic competitiveness, competitiveness, but we also, destroy our ability to be good neighbors and good community members and good citizens.
0: It feels like there are two sort of interesting arguments you could make about the the economy. One is that you prepare people to be entrepreneurial contributors and they'll figure out how to make the economy better. The other is that Mm -hmm. the economy actually has nothing to do with schooling. It has to do with social policy and economic policy and that schooling is actually sort of a lagging indicator. We've got just a few minutes left. So what advice would you give to somebody who cares about this and wants to think more deeply about it?
1: Um, That's a great question. I think these were the, in in my Project Censor 2013 chapter, I had sort of four tips for this. First of all, you've got to be able to recognize the germ narrative. Outside of whether you believe the marketplace is good or not, you've got to be able to recognize its existence. Because right now it's become the normal way that we read and talk about education. Most reporters don't even question it. Failing schools that word is used without question. The idea that merit pay should be used is almost never questioned. So when you're looking at an article, really look to see, do you see the term failing schools used? Do you see words like productivity or efficiency used? Do you see the word choice used? These are all business terms. Do you see any kind of business language that suggests to you that you're looking at something that's a germ narrative? On the other token, if you hear highly inflated rhetoric about civil rights, If you hear something about empowering people, I would look at that pretty carefully. Um, Diane Ravitch, whom I spoke with, emailed me and said that when she worked on the other side of the aisle for the conservative Manhattan Institute, they talked explicitly about selling charter schools and vouchers by appealing to liberal sense of wanting to care for poor African-American children. So this is a part of the strategy to appeal not only to business people through this language, but appeal to the sort of liberal side. So if you hear any over-insulated rhetoric, I would scrutinize that more and see what are the actual policies that are being proposed, for better or for worse. And beyond that, I mean, I have a particular point of view. I'm just trying to get the, the ideas out there. My point of view would be to, if you don't believe in the germ narrative, to resist using those terms. I don't ever use the term failing schools. I really I use other terms. They said you know schools. I, I really talk about schools that struggle, impoverished schools. So if you don't like this germ narrative, talk about it in a different way. Because the more that you use this language of germ, the more that you reinverse that that worldview, and then reframing the conversation. That's what I've tried to do here. To talk about alternative ways of thinking. Even if you believe charter schools are the best, we need to really be able to have a vibrant debate. Look at all sides of this issue. And right now we don't have that debate. So we've got to look at different angles on this. And that would be my advice, again, recognize the dominant narrative that's happening. If you don't believe in it, resist using it. And whatever your case is, reframe it. Try to look at this issue, seek out these other viewpoints. Go look up Diane Ravitch, look up Anthony Cody, look up Paul Thomas, listen to that interview with Steve, uh, the last one, it was a wonderful interview. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter. There's a lot of stuff going on. It doesn't mean you have to believe anything. I don't care if anyone believes anything I've said on here. The main thing is I'd love just to, my goal is to open up the dialogue and to have it not be so lopsided as it's been for the last couple of years.
0: (laughs) That's a great way to finish. Okay, so we've been talking to Adam Bessie, who co-authored a three-part series on the global education reform movement. The link, I just put the link to the Mighty Bell Space in there. That three-part series is in the Mighty Bell Space as well as many others. Adam, thanks for coming on. It's been delightful.
1: Oh, this has been great, and great questions from the audience. Thank you so much, everybody.
0: Courtesy, we do finish on time. Next week, the School Leadership Summit, schoolleadershipsummit.com. It is a free all-day event. would love to have you attend. Thanks to Adam. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day or night, depending on where you are. Bye now. Be in bell space and keep that conversation going, and feel free to trade Links and contact information.
1: Okay, bye.